Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan head up the California coast to check in on dance music developments in Northern California in the early 1990s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? If I'm saying that, that means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Harkness, to continue our discussions of Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And today we're on chapter four, the finale of The Gathering, plus UFOs are real, San Francisco, California, April 11th, 1992. And Ryan, this week, he doesn't bury the lead. He goes right into the parties in question. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, it does directly go to those parties, but then it does a, a big detour off into the world of the internet, which is a really big deal. And I feel like that's something that you know maybe has gotten like half a paragraph in all the other books that we've covered. So considering how important the internet is to to rave culture and kids finding this stuff and everything else like that, I thought it was really cool that uh, it finally gets its moment to like kind of shine. Yeah, absolutely. Like Simon Reynolds had talked about the San Francisco Bay scene in Energy Flash, but he left. I mean, he kind of mentioned and alluded. He mentioned that some of the people were in tech, and I think he mentioned Mondo 2000, the Internet Magazine, much might have mentioned Wired, but he didn't really get to the heart of it. He didn't, certainly didn't talk about the mailing lists and the BBS servers, which were a big part of it. But Matos, again, is much more of a storyteller, and I think in this instance – He's really got his finger on the pulse of something that Reynolds, I think, partly missed because he was a Brit. And I don't think the Internet was as big a part of the scene in Britain because it exploded to national consciousness so quickly. It was on the BBC. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the main event of the BBC, but but groups like the KLF, et cetera, all the Chicago house bands, um, they were getting on the BBC. They were on top of the pops, et cetera. They were in the music magazines. So there wasn't this desperate need for an alternate communications medium like there was in the States where not only was the dance music scene underground, but the electronic dance music scene was under the underground. I mean, you had uh, the grunge explosion, you had the alternative punk explosion, you know, you had pop punk bubbling under, you had all the stuff. You still had high energy dancing going on. And, and in San Francisco was one of the last basically was one of the only bastions of high energy dance in the States, San Francisco, New York. And then mainly it was in London and then became a big pop phenomenon in England. So he kind of explained some of that, but let's talk about the two parties in question. 
We had UFOs Are Real, which was presented by Toontown. It was on the roof of the Fashion Center. Toontown was a San Francisco a promoter group that had been doing dances. Moby was the headliner. This is the second time Moby's came up. He he played bass uh, for the Dows um, and their act Vandal in a brief mention last chapter. And now he's headlining this dance, but that's all they say. That and mentions that his song Go was a top 10 hit in the UK. And that they it also had... mentions the fact that it was uh, not quite a ripoff of the Twin Peaks theme, but a but definitely like a rewrite, an yeah. obvious one. So, yeah. I, I mean, very smart for him to, to, to think, you know what, instead of sampling this and and getting caught in the jaws of the law, I'm just going to take like the three notes and just and just you, recreate those. Very smart. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a good play on Moby's part, but that's that's all the love he gets here. Um, and also the posters for this event and the ads claimed that they were going to have Kevin Saunderson uh, from the Belleville Three from Detroit. They were going to have Joey Beltram from New Jersey. They were going to have San Francisco's all Doc Martin there. All three were billed, but they all know showed um, the local DJ Marky Mark. Uh, did play, but in some of the promotions, he was confused with Marky Mark with a Y, uh, a.k.a. Mark Wahlberg, who at this point was a rapper with a pop hit, um, advertising the local weeklies, San Francisco Weekly and the San Francisco Bay Guardian, had a no in and out policy, and apparently the dance floor was thick with bystanders. Is that a diss or what? That's definitely a diss and a diss. And, you know, they they, they basically kind of, painted this as a as a story of two raves where you have like the guys coming in and splashing the cash and 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 making it this uh bigger than life maybe even like kind of implied money making thing without the real vibe and uh you know it's such a classic story too is these 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 big parties uh half the djs don't show up Uh, the other half of the djs have names that you confuse with other people who are more famous it's uh, <laughs> it, it's quite a, a hilarious confluence of like all of these sketchy, like big rave elements. I see. And the other dance party that night was the finale of the gathering, which was at Soma, the San Francisco something modern art, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, presented by Martin O'Brien, who's a Brit who'd been in San Francisco promoting shows for a while. Their slogan was a no frills party where the music is the essence and the main participant is you. So they're not centering uh, star DJs. It's not about Moby up on a pedestal. It's about you out on the dance floor. It was cheaper. The other one was 23 bucks. This one was 17 bucks. It was advertised by flyers and word of mouth only. No radio ads, no paid weekly ads in the local weeklies. Um, no out-of-town DJs, uh, locals Josh, Gino with umlauts. How do you say that, Gino? Uh, just Gino. Yeah, Gino. And I mean, God, like, there's there's umlauts in there, but don't think that there was anybody was saying anything other than Gino. Yeah, because I don't, like, I never see, uh, I'm not a German scholar, but I did fail a number of semesters of German in college, and I don't remember seeing an O with umlauts at the end of a word. But anyway, I mean, if they did, I certainly didn't learn to pronounce it in my four semesters at community college but um and then garth also played and there was and it was the clear winner by midnight the line at finale of the gathering was 150 people long no line to get in at ufos are real where you or people were overheard saying if your name's not on the list you're not getting in so there's a showbiz vibe whereas the finale of the gathering was had hand steps for readmission so you can come and go and the dance floor was packed despite being carpeted uh, you know, that's just a classic detail. I like Matos. That's just good writing. He he gives you this uh, feel for 
what's actually happened. And then um, he segues and mentions that it was also promoted on a on a it wasn't an email list. It was a listserv called SF Raves. And Amato says the rise of the U.S. rave scene and the rise of the Internet, besides being concurrent, mirrored each other in many ways. They, they both mixed rhetorical utopianism with insider snobbery. They were both future-forward free spaces with a special appeal to geeks and wonks. They took root in the 80s and emerged in fits and starts through the mid-90s before becoming part of the social the wider social fabric. And techno is the classic music of early adopters. So um, thoughts on these confluences? Yeah, I mean... I, I think maybe he's trying to argue that the finale of the gathering might have might have kicked the other party's butt because it was it was advertised on SF raves and other underground places uh, while while UFOs are real was more of like in the newspaper and on the radio. And I think later on in the chapter, they there there was an active thing where they said, if you hear about this uh, about a rave on the radio, it's a fake rave because then it's not really underground and stuff like that. There is definitely a battle. And this goes on in almost every city through this period of time between uh, the true underground, uh, I put quotations around true, and, and and then like the fake underground, which is seen as too commercial. And uh, I think I think in this case, like Finale of the Gathering had a number of things going for it. I mean, it, the Gathering is a series of parties uh, and they're, they're claiming it's the finale. You read the fine print and it's actually just you know they're they're going to be pivoting off and and doing a, uh, parties of a different name it's not actually the last gathering uh per se but you know they have that that smart advertising element uh, that that sketchy kind of almost a lie element of advertising for it you mean and this is going to be the who's last tour we're never yeah, going to see yeah, Townsend yeah, exactly. and Dolce together again. We better buy tickets now. So yeah, that that classic play from the rock world. And but, these are these are promoters that have been around for a, a long time doing a bunch of events. And if they're saying finale, everybody turns their head and looks. And it, sometimes it doesn't matter. You could have everybody everybody that's hot right now under one other roof. But if a small promoter with a with a with with the key people coming to it throw another party on, on your night, you're screwed. And this is just another reason why I think last episode I mentioned the fact that like, you know, promoters left and right, the story of the rave scene is, oops, I lost $10,000. Oops, I lost $20,000. Ouch, ouch. But let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is from Mr. Fingers, Amnesia, 1989. the Chicago House classic Amnesia by Mr. Fingers. Why did you pick this one, Ryan? You know, the book mentions that uh, Doc Martin was kind of in San Francisco breaking people into the rave sound playing Mr. Fingers. So I just dug a bit deep and looked, went through my uh, 1989, my, my, my late 80s Mr. Fingers collection and uh, picked out that goodie. I see. I see. Nice touch. And yeah, Doc Martin was somebody who was one of these DJs that had been playing the high energy sound uh, to the San Francisco dance clubs and the gay clubs. 
And, you know, places like DV8, spelled D-V, number eight, also the DNA Lounge. He started sneaking house into his sets in 1986, which is fairly contemporary, but a little bit behind, especially for San Francisco, which had been on the cutting edge of disco and everything uh, throughout the 70s. And like I said, was at the forefront of the high energy scene. But the AIDS epidemic in particular savaged San Francisco. And so the scene was kind of, you know... In PTSD, I mean, there was massive trauma, deaths of a ton of young people that have been active in the scene. And Matos manages to get that story in. I mean, Brewster and Broughton talked about the high energy scene and and the the AIDS carnage in that context. Reynolds didn't really touch on the AIDS uh, disaster um, in Energy Flash. So it's good. It's good to touch that. Was it going on? I assume it was going on in the UK, but maybe just oh, not yeah. as visibly, or 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 just not as 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 big of a, a situation as it was in in America, where there were bastions of of, of gay freedom, where where people like where, where everybody gathered, kind of. I don't know. I, I, I that's an interesting thing. I don't know enough. I'm not a scholar of gay history, so I don't know what was going on in England. There. I mean, I know they had the gay bars and they they had the scene, and AIDS obviously was inescapable in that period, but. Yeah, it doesn't. It does come up in Brewster and Broughton, but they mostly talk about it in the context of San Francisco and New York, and not as much London. So I don't know. That's a good point. And also, I think, with the exception of high energy, the gay culture hadn't been as much a driver of dance culture in in England as it had been in the states. I mean, things like Northern Soul weren't really linked. I'm sure there were plenty of gay fans and DJs and promoters like everywhere else, but they weren't. It wasn't gay culture per se the way say the loft or uh paradise garage in new york or obviously the warehouse in chicago had been but anyway um miss doc martin starts sneaking mr fingers into his sets in 86 by 87 he's playing mostly house and then he said hip house really bridged the gap in san francisco that producers like fast eddie and tyree cooper were playing stuff that the san francisco gay crowd really dug he was also playing a lot of speakeasy parties and lofts and another irony was that ecstasy was slow to take hold in San Francisco. So people were afraid. People like they they basically said that people were afraid to be taking ecstasy. And, and you know, based on my understanding of late '80s, early '90s drug, uh, the drug scene, you know, where everything was PCP, angel dust, and uh, like basically all sorts of really scary stuff. I'm not surprised that that. You know, a new drug comes out and people are looking at it a little bit sideways. Like, you know, I'm sure crack before it was known as crack was, was people were saying, oh, this is great. you got to try it. So <laughs> any, anybody that's a little bit nervous, you know, pre-internet, you can't even you can't really do all that much research on these forbidden topics. Right. So not not surprising, but kind of surprising at the same time. Yeah, definitely interesting, although it, it will catch on before the end of this chapter. Don't you worry. But um by 1990, he's playing at the Townsend Club, drawing up to 800 people on a Thursday night with a mostly hip house set. He had D-Light play there before the big hit came through. Um, and by the time that Toontown and The Gathering, which was the, kind of the first big rave promoters in San Francisco launch, he's drawing three to 5,000 people a night uh, there. So, you know, Doc Martin had kind of built a scene, but then he goes to LA and kind of abdicates and that leaves the space open for a whole slew of new promoters, many of whom are Brits, to start promoting uh, shows and rave shows. And so one of the first was a, a crew called Wicked, um, led by DJ Garth Wynn-Jones. And you know, somebody named Wynn-Jones is going to be a Brit. That 
I don't know what it is with the hyphenated names, but they didn't bring those to America when they when they colonized over here. Do you have those in Canada? Oh uh, yeah, we do. My girlfriend wow. has a has a hyphenated name. I actually like several of my girlfriends have had hyphenated names, and I don't because my parents are British and Australian. I see, I see. So there you go. So, but DJ Garth Wynn Jones, he spent the summer of '89 in San Francisco, then went back home to to the UK, got involved with a sound system crew called Tonka. They had been a hip hop sound scratch crew. Um, but then they became acid house purists while he was there. So he goes back to San Francisco in 1990 because the free party spirit was coming to a close in the UK. And he was apparently one of these sobs who was too cool for, uh, you know, the shows on the orbit or the, the big out in the country, the orbital. Yeah. He, he, he was, you know, a snob. He was into the smaller parties. The Tonka parties were relatively small. They weren't things like sunrise where there's thousands of thousands of people, but he comes back, um, does his prom- promotion the full moon party at Baker Beach? So this is a totally legendary thing. DJ D- Gino was there. Uh, I don't know if he had the umlaut yet, but he was the first to show up, and this created a groundswell in Doc Martin's absence. And uh, even though in Britain they're already going hardcore by this point, the Prodigy and their um, Toontown stuff. Not not Toontown. What was it they called? Toy Town. Toy techno. Well, Toy Town was the was the was what they called all the stuff like Prodigy's Charlie and yeah. uh, and all the other things that kind of took cartoon samples or chipmunked it up and stuff like that. Yeah. So so that's going on, but it's also very ominous and creepy, and it's a new vibe that we discussed uh, at great length in the Reynolds chapters. That didn't affect here. They're pushing the straight up smiley face and the first summer, uh, first second summer of love type iconography. Yeah, they keep everything real, like not real slow, but I mean, comparatively to now, it's definitely real slow. They're like, uh, you know, 125 to 130 and uh, all and second beats per minute for those of you who aren't hit to the lingo. True, true. And it's it's all kind of mixed all together, the house, the techno and a lot of break beats as well. And uh, obviously, if you got break beats in there, you're going to have some hip hop influence as well. And I think that's where those Tonka guys, you know, with their scratch hip hop DJ uh, past definitely like San Francisco has always had a reputation for being a real breaksy town. And, uh, you can hear it in a lot of like Gino's mixes and a lot of Garth's mixes. Gino and Garth were the two names that I recognized because they would pop up all the time on all of the flyers and stuff. They were the, they were the two big San Francisco guys when I was like, you know, scoping out flyers on the net or, or, you know, get a handful of flyers from a friend in the States or something like that. Yeah, it's definitely audible. And Matos has uh, several sets from the era in his mixography. And if you can find those and listen to him, highly recommended. Gino set in particular, like you say, yeah, the, the break sound jumped out at me. And they also um, recruited uh, one of the Tonka DJs. Thomas Bullock came over in 1992. He was in the States for a visit when Jones was like, hey, you got your records with you? Come now, get out to San Francisco. And so they got wicked going. Meanwhile, Toontown starts up. And here's one of the downsides of Matos being such an elegant writer. He sneaks in the name of three founders of Toontown at various points. And I had to go back and and you know add them to my notes. So he mentions Craig Valentine, Mark Haley, and Preston Lighton as the the founders of Toontown, but he never says Toontown founded on, you know, which is kind of a clunky by these guys. He 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 tends to bury the lead in there um, because of the elegance of the writing. So, you know, I, it makes for a better reading experience, I have to say. But when you're dorking out like we are, it can be um, a little bit a confusing bit. sometimes. Yes. 
a little bit difficult and, and stuff, but time for our next one. This is Count Zero's Silent Prayer Number 1 from 1990. Count Zero's Silent Prayer Number One. Why'd you pick that one? Uh, you know, listen to a bunch of DJ Gino, uh, and uh, Silent Prayer Number One is one of those tracks that stood out to me. So I, I, I used my Shazam on the phone to figure out what the hell it was. Went through a couple of false positives, but tracked it down. And here you go. Awesome. Good work. Good work. Yeah, Shazam can be maddening with this stuff. It, it, it'll tease you and taunt you, and but it's a very useful tool. It's something. Yeah, this makes this job a lot easier. Um, job. But uh, so we talked about Toontown, the founders, Craig Valentine, Mark Haley, and Preston Litton. Their first party was a warehouse space south of Market Street. They brought in UK DJ Jonas Sharp, a refugee from Hardcore's 140 beats per minute tempos. I wanted to be in the chill out room. So in Britain, he'd already established himself as a specialist in the chill out rooms. And that's where they're playing more a mix of ambient and and stuff for the for the come down, the, the early morning hours. And so he's brought into Toontown to organize the Friday night chill out room. And Matos mentions that this is the point where the U.S. rave scene is becoming white and middle class, especially in countercultural San Francisco. And so gay clubs like Deviate are seen as passe by ravers. And Doc Martin leaving, I'm sure, didn't help with that. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, disco culture in America was built on black, Latin, and gay cultures coming together. And, um, you know, Chicago House obviously was 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 black and gay. Detroit techno was black and straight. Go over to England and kind of get this ethnic wash or whatever. It's the same old story. It's been happening since the Beatles, where black American culture goes over to England, it gets whitewashed, and John Lennon comes back and sells it back to us. And so the same thing kind of sells it back here. to the middle class kids. Yes, yes, who'd been oblivious to it. At the time, yeah, there's stories of like Rod Stewart the first time he played in New York, like hiding behind the amplifiers for the first 15 minutes because he thinks he's going to be playing to a room full of black people who know actual blues singers and won't won't be fooled by his act. And then he realizes it's a bunch of dumb white hippies and they're eating it out, eating out of the palm of his hand. So, yeah, it's a, it's an old story, often told. And then and the it's, next- it's always a big question as to as to why uh, maybe some of the lower uh, the the lower class people like left. And I think maybe it has to do in America with the fact that they'd already moved on to hip hop. Um, like yeah. the next big thing, like, like we always talk about this, how the, 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 the innovation and the driving of new music comes from, from all these marginalized, uh, cultures and people kind of on the outside of the machine. Uh, you know, the middle-class people eating up rave and stuff like that is because I feel like it, you know, it had its moment, it went away and then it came back repackaged and this is where the middle class kind of came and you know the out the outskirts of the middle class because i always feel like the rave movement kind of picked up all those people who were uncomfortable with 
the mainstream sound coming out of the radio when they were looking for something a little bit different, but at the same time, and they were it was... also uncomfortable with the other underground scenes. Cause like I said, you had a lot, you had college rock, you had punk rock, you had heavy metal, you know, there were a lot of different choices and working class white people had opted out of dance music in America in the sixties, you know? So it's interesting, but, but do you think that the internet aspect of it kind of made San Francisco or the whole internet scene, the American scene, I mean, kind of, did that make them sort of cultural outsiders and give them an extra edge that they wouldn't have had normally? Yeah. I mean, you got to remember, especially in these extremely early days of like 1992, before anybody knew really anything about anything, um, it was, it was really only the cutting edge of, of people on that tip of technology that, that were around uh, using the internet. So you're getting a bunch of people who are extremely forward thinking, who are obviously technologically like inclined. So this mu music is going to be like, uh, exactly. It, it just fits perfectly with it's peanut butter and jam, you know, like it's, it, of course, anybody who's on the internet is going to be digging this sound. So it, it really pulled a bunch of these forward thinking technophiles together and created that, uh, that unique scene. And yet, they weren't really on the forefront of record production. They're mostly playing stuff coming from Chicago and Detroit and England. Is that correct? I mean, for the first little while, I think it, and New you York know, too. yeah, it's, it, there's a big, there's a big, it, there's a big switch up coming in a couple more years. And it's hard to like use a blanket statement because for the most part, I feel like there was stuff being produced. It just wasn't getting picked up by labels and it wasn't making a historic impact, but there was stuff going on, but uh, not in any kind of uh, impactful, full manner. Yeah, it wasn't world shaking. And so then the next sort of detour Matos goes on is to mention the Portland and Seattle scenes, which are up the coast from San Francisco. And it's a good jump. I mean, it's like an eight hour drive from San Francisco to Portland um, and then just a couple hours more from there to Seattle. But that they've essentially were outposts of the San Francisco scene. Like San, Seattle is going through the aftermath of the grunge explosion. So every wannabe rocker in America has stopped moving to LA and started moving to Seattle. Um, and Portland, which had a sort of twin city scene, rock scene to Seattle. And there were also scenes in Olympia and other places, Vancouver in this area, but they all get outshone by Seattle. Seattle becomes the magnet for the real careerist wannabes. And so Portland is kind of looking for other things. And 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 Seattle, the rave scene becomes an alternative to this commercialized grunge scene that's going on. And so um, you've got people like uh, Oregon promoter Manoj Matthew, who's inspired by a Groove Asylum event he saw in San Francisco. You've got the funky techno tribe um, DJ Dan and Donald Cloud, who moved from Seattle to San Francisco just because they couldn't there was no air under their wings in Seattle, basically. Um, but you had things like the follow the yellow brick road party in Seattle in 1992, where they passed out 500 free hits of acid, uh, according to DJ Shu. Um, yeah, <laughs> just crazy stuff. That, that, that we had some punk rock parties in Austin where bands like scratch acid would pass out acid, but it would be more like 15 free hits of acid or 50 free hits of acid. 500 free hits of acid is Wow. Yeah, um, they said they had a uh, like a, a an amateur chemist on staff, so it starts to make a little bit more sense there. But these yeah. uh, the, these these satellite scenes definitely happen, like where you have like a a big city nearby that's really rocking, and then you then you've kind of got 
breadcrumbs going from there to another city. In my my city, Ottawa was 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 kind of a, a small satellite city between Montreal and Toronto, and we used to basically get mostly just all the headliners that were in those cities would come and come and come to us after that because there were linkups between the promoters, and it was the only way you could kind of get into that get into that cycle at first. Yeah, and pretty much, and with the reality of Seattle and Portland is. They don't get all the shows that come to San Francisco, but if they get a show, it's almost guaranteed they were in San Francisco first. Like if you're going to go all that way, you've, you've definitely stopped in San Francisco um, before going up there. And then it returns uh, to the drug culture a little bit more that the Bay Area starts having this big psychedelic renaissance from 91 to 93. And MDMA, a.k.a. ecstasy or X or E, um, or is Molly. a big part of it. Or Molly, and this is where Molly comes from because um, they had again the enthusiastic amateur chemists, and the first capsules of of what were called Molly, it was originally pure molecule. Was they were talking about, and you'd get a capsule that would, uh, well, allegedly, I never was this lucky, but had um, just a few grams of powder in the bottom of it, and people were looking at it like, "What is this?" And then they'd drop it and go, "Oh, that's what this is," and that's where it became Molly. But let's take a break from our sponsors, who I'm sure will be delighted to be associated with this conversation. And thank you to the sponsors for subsidizing our decadence. And there was a description in the book of the Groove Asylum event that I mentioned earlier that I just have to read. It, it It's a, just to me, it's a perfect if you've been lucky enough to party in the Bay Area and have one of these experiences, this is kind of the, the epitome of it. It said the first phase of the party started at the Warfield Theater and ran until two or three in the morning, then moved to another venue. People with bone necklaces and drums were in the club, drumming along with the music. The inevitable hippie drum circle comes from the park uh, to the club. Uh, at the end of the evening, we did a closed circle, all holding hands. It brought the spirit of everything together. Then we went to Golden Gate Park in the morning for a 500 to 800 person dance event. And we had this incredible picnic dance party out there as the day broke. I mean, that's just classic San Francisco. And that's one of the towns I usually can't stand hippies. But in San Francisco, especially in this period, you just couldn't fight it. I mean, the hippies were institutionalized there. They had a 20-year legacy. They drew hippies from all over the country and all over the world. And it was just – basically, if you wanted to have fun in San Francisco, you had to to not just put up with the hippies but go with the hippies and you know, drum well, it circles. Helped. It helps that it was the reality there. Like any anywhere else, you've got – the hippies out of out of sync with kind of reality and and a lot of their advice and a lot of their mojo and a lot of that a lot of everything will just be out of sync and if you take their advice you're going to fall on your face and have a really bad time but in san francisco they they had managed to kind of create this uh create this scene and and create this uh this group where within this you could actually kind of live that vibe successfully and enjoy it and uh you know like it wasn't completely bullshit because they made it not bullshit yeah and this was you know before you had a, a antibiotic resistant gonorrhea going around so um and like they say there was actual sex going on in the chill out rooms frequently at, at this point and people dancing like trees and all the <laughs> all the hippie stuff that that people can't stand but um was accepted and applauded and people like timothy leary and uh and Matos doesn't really mention it. I think Reynolds mentioned more of the sort of psychedelic heroes um, whose names I'm blanking on. But there was a whole bunch of those guys who who dusted themselves off and and really enthused about the rave scene 
And meanwhile, the f- the full moon events are continuing, and a consortium of the of promoters are partnering on those. And so you've got Martin O'Brien from The Gathering, yet another expat, uh, Marky Mark from Wicked, Garth DJs Garth and Gina that we mentioned, and also this guy Malky O'Brien. And he only gets a mention here, um, but Reynolds talked about him, and he's kind of the martyr of this scene. He's a real sweetheart of a guy. Matos does mention that he donated most of his promoted money to charity. I think he ends up having a car wreck and getting paralyzed shortly after this, but kind of the good angel of the scene. Um, any comments about the full moon events? Yeah, just the fact that it was like a synergistic effort. Uh, my production name for our raves when we first started was Synergy, and uh, it was kind of based on what we were seeing from from other places where everybody working together was was what was making the best parties. Yeah, and it's magic. And later on, there's going to be a slogan for that, which is am I stumping you? Because I can't remember it either. Oh no, no, I don't even know. I know what you're referring to at all. Okay. Well, we'll we'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> it's like um, such a poorly phrased question that I don't even know, like yeah, even know. where you're pointing to. I'm sorry, I, I, we're. Uh... I do that. There, there's a slogan. There's an acronym for all the good things, and it was what, a plur? plur. Yeah, yeah. Peace, oh, love. What is it? <laughs> Unity and respect. Unity and respect. See, I was the hardcore punk kid, so we didn't. Well, we would talk about that kind of thing, but if we saw hippies or dance people talking about it, you know. We'd smash. But anyway, so Plur, yeah, that uh, hasn't been formalized yet, but that's what they were doing. And then he goes on a detour to, down to Silicon Valley. So if you're not feel, familiar with the geography of the Bay, it's kind of a triangle with San Francisco on the upper left on the west coast of it, Oakland and Berkeley across the Bay to the north, and then San Jose at the bottom of the triangle at the bottom of the Bay. And San Jose is where the tech companies uh, mostly centered and um, – so you, and then he gets into things like the well, which was the whole Earth electronic link, W-E-L-L, get it, electronic, which goes back to 85, early kind of bulletin board, had a big hippie ethos. There was the Mondo 2000 magazine. It was more of a fanzine, and it was like an early tech lifestyle mag. It focused on drugs, sex, and music as much as it did on the technology. And you had people like Brian Bellendorf, who literally – wrote the code for the Apache web server that the whole web runs off today. And he's got a great quote. He's like, you're inventing the future at your day job and you're inventing your future at the stuff you do for play, the future. And he's the guy who started the SF rave list. And um, so Matos gives him a little bio. He's an LA K-Rock kid. And we've mentioned K-Rock, K-R-O-Q, FM radio, powerful FM radio station from Los Angeles which had Rodney on the rock, who's an old school 60s and 70s DJ. I mean, this guy partied with Brian Jones and Frank Zappa back in the 60s. In the 70s, he's like fostering the only glam scene in the States. I'm not talking about glam metal. I'm talking about Gary Glitter and Slade and T-Rex glam, where the Runaways were born. Uh, That's Joan Jett and Lita Ford's band um, and Jerry Curry, of course, and played punk on the radio so black flag and x and as well and the dead kennedys from san francisco and all kinds of bands so people who were k-rock kids were more open-minded and been exposed to a lot more music all the synth pop all the post-punk coming out of england they got all that stuff on the radio he was drawn to the madchester bands and we talked about those last week and kind of dismissed that they didn't make an impact in the states but they did reach some people he's also into the early english tech groups techno groups like 808 state uh, a guy called Gerald, et cetera. And he went to Magical Mikey's ho- or Mickey's Holy Water Adventure 
in June of 91 in LA before he enrolled in UC Berkeley in the fall. And so that was, you know, a water park, a rave at a water park. That is so Los Angeles. Yeah, I, there was a, there's a festival called Electric Forest and it's done on a, on a, on a huge land that also has a water park attached to it. And uh, you can take a bus over to the water park and play in the water park. And it was fun for the first couple of years. And now obviously Electric Forest is just this massive thing. And and the water park is just so, is jammed up. It's really hard to get there. It's more of a pain in the ass than it's worth. And it's also pretty like gray water by the time anybody else shows up to it. <laughs> but yeah, like those early days where it's like the water park is, underserved and 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 you can just no no one really cares and and safety is is you know it's on people's minds but it's not you know it's not overwhelmingly people aren't being infantilized we're we're just going to open up the water park until 2 a.m have fun (laughs) those 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 were the best days where you could just go into a place and they'd be like we're going to operate it like we would any other day except it's it's at night Yep. And and your chances of getting hepatitis C in the water are much lower than they are today uh, with the overwhelming crowds. And so um, Ballendorf gets up to San Francisco or to Berkeley to go to college, and he's looking for the local rave scene, and he's not finding anything. So he starts this mailing list on the internet, SF Raves. And then um, he posts, he sets up a whole server, which he calls uh, Hyperial, spelled hyperreal, but it's pronounced like Hyperion, Hyperial. I think I'm doing that. Right. Um, and soon they're hosting other lists like the NE Raves for New England, MW Raves for the Midwest, NYC Raves for New York City, the PBCLE Raves for Pittsburgh and Cleveland, SoCal Raves for the LA area, the 313 uh, list for Detroit. That's their area code. I love that the Detroit didn't go with the same um, naming convention as everybody else. Yeah, 313 was already, already an established thing that people were repping the area code. So that's probably why. Yeah, there you go. And, and and fittingly, a strong scene. So, And this immediately starts communicating and reaching people. I think he's, he sends, you know, puts together a list of five events and sends it to 35 people. And that's the beginning of SF Raves. But let's, let's hear our next track. This is The Scientist, The Bee from 1990. was the bee by the scientist from 1990 why'd you pick that one i think uh, one of the hard kiss brothers was kind of uh buzzing about it in the book and uh, it's 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 a good he was <laughs> he, he, he's kind of using that as that one track to open people's minds up to what you know you'd be hearing at this event and it's definitely weird enough it's almost what you consider like a novelty track like kind of like how like mars pump up the volume or something but in that way like these novelty tracks are novelty because they're novel so you hear it for the first time and you're like what and it's going to drag you out. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's a bit silly in, 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 in hindsight. But uh, as somebody who's never heard anything like this, I think it'll get people pretty interested. Yeah. And in fact, Matos tells an anecdote about the, the pre-formation of the Hard Kiss uh, DJ Collective, where Robbie Cameron, one of the future members, he moved to San Francisco in 89. But he's getting letters uh, from his friend Scott Friedel, who's at Oxford. 
and went to high school together, but Friedel went to England to go to Oxford, and he's hip to the acid house scene and the emerging hardcore scene in England and sends him letters. And we're talking about physical letters. This is still an era where most people wrote letters on paper and mail them with stamps. And he's raving about this track, The Bee by the Scientist. So um, uh, the future Rob Hardkiss tracks it down and finds it. And meanwhile, Friedel uh, and Gavin Bieber, his buddy from the University of Pennsylvania, I guess, I'm not sure where he met Cameron. Maybe they were both at U of P, uh, UPenn. But um, there was uh, two, two of the uh, two of the the Hardkiss brothers came down from from Pittsburgh and met up with one of the other ones. But I always get, I cannot for the life of me Cameron remember is the one who any any of them are, and I have interacted with two of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I still have no idea who it was. I, I, I'm at two of the Beatles. I'm not sure if it was George or Ringo or. Pete, I, I'm not they sure. They all have the same haircut. How are you supposed yeah. to tell? <laughs> exactly. So two of the guys had moved uh, from UPenn. They moved to San Francisco in 91, and I put in my notes, from U of Penn by way of Oxford. And they had been throwing parties in Philly, where DJ Josh Wink was kind of single-handedly just you know driving the dance scene in Philadelphia, which Philly had a thriving hip hop scene, you know, producing uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and Schooly D and many others. So Wink is is you know battling uphill and making a mark. And these guys are inspired by that, and they form Hard Kiss, kind of like the Ramones, where they all take the last name Hard Kiss. So you've got Rob Hard Kiss, Gavin Hard Kiss, Scott Hard Kiss. They meet the promoter Martin O'Brien, and in two months they're resident at 650 Howard Street, and uh, even um, bring in Frankie Bones from New York to San Francisco in 91. So the scene is kind of building on itself and these local DJs are beginning to make a name. And it talks about how uh, the Hardkiss trio had segued from DJing into producing or from DJ promoters into producing for this very same reason, like you mentioned, they saw how, yes, sometimes you can make a big pile of money, but more often than not, you can lose your whole kitty. Why not buy some equipment that will keep and make records that we can sell instead of parties. So, and what a hard- tenuous situation it is where where you're looking at what you're doing throwing raves, and you're like, this is this is not stable. I better get into the music industry, which is much more of an of a, of a stable way to make money and not get screwed over. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a legendary podcaster who has told the whole reason why he's not a musician because his father was a famous musician, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, look, you can be super famous as a musician and make no money. He's making better money as a podcaster, which tells you something. So yeah, if, if promoting shows is less unstable than the music industry, wow, that says, or it is the music industry, but less, you know, financially remunerative than making records. Yeah. That doesn't, doesn't say much. Although he does mention, that Toontown drew 7,200 people to their New Year's Eve rave in 92 and made 125 grand, which is not a bad payday. So, you know, sometimes it's true. There, there are definitely, there are definitely windfalls that happen every so often. I've had, I've had a couple of ridiculous ones in, in, in my past that, uh, that that just blew me away, and uh, then you then you kind of spread if you spread it around equally to all the people who've been putting in all the work, you're you're left with not that much pretty quick. And most of these people will just take it and and use that money to like bring even more DJs in for another party that will then <laughs> do badly <laughs> because yeah. because somebody else is just like hey, you know our best friend is leaving this night, so we're gonna throw a little a little local thing, and then you're like you know. 
$50,000 event with Moby goes down in flames and you're just like, what happened? Yeah, there are definitely windfalls that happen. And uh, I, I've, I've been the, the fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to have a couple my way too. But I, once, you, once you spread it out to everybody that deserves it for all the events that didn't make money over the years, you're not usually left with much. And then most of these guys are probably taking it, turning it around and putting that money into a real swanky venue and even bigger DJs from around the world. And, and all of a sudden that next party that's supposed to be the real, the real special one has zero people at it because somebody down the street decided to throw a going away party for their buddy and everybody shows up there for some reason. And that's just rave, man. Yep. It's, it's a brutal business. And this is why Robert De Niro killed all his sidekicks uh, and Goodfellas after he made his big score. Why share? Why share? That's, you know, in this neoliberal world. Um, yeah, full, 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 full moon party down by the beach. Just go there and drown all your competition. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the uh, promoters were not gangsters of that ilk and were not slaughtering each other. But by night, by February 1992, Motto says there are seven ongoing rave parties in the Bay Area. You've got Wicked, The Gathering, Housing Project, a rave called Sharon, Mr. Floppy's Funhouse, sunny side up and outrage and and i guess toontown is still going there too so uh is that seven or eight but anyway so it's it's a bustling scene and it's starting to produce native uh record producers as well and um then uh, the gathering resumes so the the party shocking, shocking. Yeah, the, we talked about at the beginning of the chapter was not the finale of the gathering it was just like a going away party for one of their crew and they come back on july 4th 1992 with let freedom rave and they go head to head with toontown again in august so um back at it he doesn't give a score for the the august uh, gathering versus the toontown rave scene so i don't know if toontown learned some lessons from from it and and only promoted underground by word of mouth and the internet or not um yeah, it's weird because you look at Toon, what Toontown is doing, and it's obviously a bit on the harder, harder tech version. While while the Gathering guys are are definitely a bit more of a of a chilled out breakhouse sound. So to me, on the outside looking in, you can almost say like, this is two scenes. But but early on at that point, obviously, it's not really big enough to to have like two perfectly distinct scenes that can support two parties of any kind of decent size. And you're going to get those connectors, those people that, uh, that are the, the deciders and whichever party they end up going to is usually the one that all their friends go to. And it's just kind of, a uh, like that from there, it's like gravity, it grows and it just drags everybody else in. Yeah. And you know, one thing that they didn't mention in this chapter that Matos says not mention in this chapter is, the whole crusty punk hippie crossover, which Reynolds spends a lot, a whole chapter on, um, in, in England. Do you know if there was any of that? Was there any crossover with, with sort of the traveler type? Was that kind of music making it over from England? At well, all? The, the, the Tonka guys came out of the same scene as the spiral tribe guys. And that's where you have a lot of the Tonka founders basically being like, we don't like the orbital parties. We don't like these big, ridiculous uh, events that, that that are no longer about community, but really about just having it and getting crazy and getting high. And, and, and they considered making a quick buck. So they brought a lot of that ethos with them. And I'm not I'm not sure about the, the the crowd break breakdown or anything else like that. But the Tonka guys 
specifically, like they had a lot of cheaper, freer events on the beach that that drew in, I think, a lot of the the, the more the more hippie crowd. But of course, because you're talking San Francisco tech scene, you've got a lot of these people who have cut their hair and are wearing buttoned up shirts, and oh. so I, I think the the it 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 it's probably a big part of of why we have like kind of such a uh, such a futuristic, peace loving, uh, technology forward rave scene in, in North America, or we did in the early nineties was See. because it, so much of it came from these San Francisco guys that were spending half their time, you know, with, with these, with these, with the, with the San Francisco vibe and the San Francisco hippies. I see. And, and, um, let's play our next track. This is wink untitled a one from 1992. Untitled A1 by Wink, 1992. And Wink, we just mentioned him, comes out of Philly. Why did you pick this track? Because he was mentioned in the book, and uh, I'm always interested in throwing some some extra Josh Wink in there. And it was fun going back all the way to his earliest release, which didn't even have a name. And it's just one of those. And, you know, that's it's like a common thing where, where, where a record would just come out with the artist name. And it's just, uh, you know, A1 or A2, if there's two tracks on one side, B1, B2, stuff like that. There are, there are a whole bunch of guys, once again, going back to the Spiral Tribe, Acid Techno guys. They, they just released, you know, uh, numbers. It was, all their records were just numbered, and that was just how they would do it. I see. And how do you – where do you pigeonhole Wink – musically like how does he fit in with the he's, various scenes that are going on he's definitely pushing forward in the techno sound um and there there's elements like uh this is something that we'll talk about later in the season as one of our one of our kind of uh niche genres that never really gets its due but there's a whole bunch of of international techno scenes that are brewing that all have specific sounds and and this wink track actually has elements of, of some swedish techno which is just really fast high hats and 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 really uh, um, stripped down stripped down beats. So yeah, so, I see I see something to look forward to there. And yeah, there's much bigger scene than than we can adequately than we can comprehensively document, even with resorting to multiple tomes here. So uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff going on in this era. And so we talked about the um, 92 rave scene in San Francisco, and they kind of wrap it up with a September party, the gathering at Golden Gate Park, which was from noon to 7 p.m. And it had multiple co-promoters. The Hard Kiss Collective was in their housing project, Community, which we haven't mentioned before, the Full Moon Massive, which I assume is a spinoff of the Full Moon promotions, and SF Rave. Rave. So the email list or the listserv becomes a promoter. Um, yeah, and they crowdsourced a lot of the money for that party, which I think is uh, really cool because that's not even something that you see see later. But I feel like, you know, I'm kind of surprised that you don't see 
something like a GoFundMe so that it's like, you know, instead of, you know, some some 17 year old sketchy raver promoter trying to put all the money together, you just start up a, a fundraiser. But SF Raves did it back in 92, man. And they they fundraised all the money in advance to do it. And they they had a really sweet setup for it. And it's it's surprising that that maybe didn't become more of a model in the well. Truth be told, the number of promoters that throw parties with very little overhead in advance and then use the ticket sales to like put it on. I guess technically the ravers are always being paying for it. <laughs> yeah, that's why so many DJs get stiffed when things when the ravers don't show up or don't pay. But yeah, like like I said, even before that gathering at Golden Gate Park, the SF Raves had promoted a, a beach party in Santa Cruz that drew 300 people, but they were able to crowdfund enough money to have lasers and projections and headlining DJs. So um, yeah, things kind of come full circle in, in this chapter with with the ties it back into the SF Raves. So overall thoughts, like were people in England paying any attention to what was going on in, in San Francisco at this point, or is this just a tiny remote backwater basically in the global it's, dance scene. That's a very good question because the, the communication is always being one direction. We get the magazines from the UK and, and we don't really know what they think of us. And there's always been a big divide. Uh, a lot of the UK DJs, once it became an, uh, a proper industry and they realized how much money was in it, tried to keep a lot of the US DJs out and they were quite successful in it uh, other than maybe some like most of the uh, the, the pioneering guys that, that you can't really deny. But guys like Diesel Boy, well, we'll talk about it later, uh, the chances of them making it to, to the UK, UK guys just aren't interested in that. I've got some friends in Toronto, they ran a very uh, serious jungle scene up there, but to go to the UK, the UK guys were like, no, like, why would we bring you over here to play our tracks? And, yeah. and, and, and true enough. It's, it's kind of similar to the resistance American uh, hip hop community had to Brits who tried to, to break into the hip hop market. And, and, you know, the, the scene, the center of gravity has moved to England. And I think the second wave of Detroit techno producers got a pass because Detroit, and also because they had a critical mass of talent and innovation that was going on. And then also the the Jersey scene, you know, with Joey Beltram and everybody is just so big and influential in Belgium, et cetera, that there are worldwide kingpins. But this, this, I guess, third wave of American EDM producers, people like Josh Wink and the Hardkiss guys are a little bit out in the cold. And we'll continue to talk about that um, as we continue our tale next week. And next week we'll be going to grave in milwaukee wisconsin october 31st that's halloween 1992 and i believe reynolds talks about this this isn't one that reynolds attended personally but he did mention the grave event so we'll be amusing to compare and contrast for ryan harkness i'm nate wilcox and we're continuing our discussion of the underground is massive how electronic dance music conquered america by michelangelo matos and i hope you join us next time Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is, that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here.
follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan venture to the Midwest to track the transition from Chicago and Detroit's club culture to a widespread regional rave culture and the Milwaukee police pushback. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.